I have the distinct honor of introducing the Reverend Jose Gonzalez Colon, who was born in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> Thank you for your time. The Reverend Gonzalez Colon earned his Bachelor of Arts with a concentration in music and mathematics from Hunter College and a Master in Science from the University of Long Island. For more than 10 years, he served as an elementary and secondary school teacher in the New York City Department of Education. After the tragedy of 9-11, Reverend Gonzalez Colon decided to follow his call to the pastorate. He completed his Master of Divinity at this esteemed and wonderful school in 2007 <laughs> and was called to pastor the first Hispanic-speaking Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn. His service to the church extends to other judiciaries. He served as a moderator of the New York Presbytery, was commissioned to the General Assembly, and currently is part of the Presbyterian Coalition for Fair Immigration. His missionary interests extend to other branches of human development, such as immigration justice, educational equity, fair housing, environmental justice, and the system of incarceration. And I think one of the best, biggest things I've seen in the last five minutes was his deep love for family who are here as well. Will you join me in welcoming Reverend Gonzalez Colon? Uh, since we're in the spirit of thankfulness, uh, we are product of our contexts. And so I would like to, uh, the thing is, I have my family here, so that's why I'm so nervous. <laughs> my mom and dad is here. My brother, my, si my sister-in-law, she's my sister from another mister. My aunt and uncle, my uh, uncle Genaro, my aunt Ellie's here. And they're the ones that keep me grounded into, you know, why we do what we do. As old as we get, we're still bringing the report card home. <laughs> and in my case, when I was young, it wasn't that good. So I have to sort of show some level of improvement, right? Um, so in that sense, you know, it... it Knowing your roots and learning where you're from and the histories of these kinds of things, uh, it, it's also part of what brings our wholeness into this thing. Remembering is an important aspect of what we do in our life and ministry, in our, in our shared stories, and in, the, in our sacred history as well. It is operative in sharing our sacred stories. Um, but I also have my niece and nephew. Carlos and Leah are here. Uh, they remind me that we have a planet to save and we have very little time. So in the short time that I have uh, in ministry and in the days that I have left, I want to dedicate uh, my time into that struggle. Uh, I shared some time last year, I marched in the uh, divestment from Louisville to St. Louis uh, for our denomination to divest from fossil fuels. Now, I know that might be a little bit heavy-handed for some of you here. Uh, it's not to take a stance against anything, but it's to take a stance about what kind of future we want and what kind of a home we want for our children and our grandchildren. And sometimes holding on to what we had can forfeit the opportunity 
to behold, to envision, and to construct the new. And with that sense, that's why we are here. And that's our task as church. Uh, we spent a lot of time in church talking about what we were. I want to talk about what we can be. Now, I think it was kind of providential that the speakers that we had, because this is another good thing about having a big podium, because my knees are shaking so much that I can't even <laughs> remember what I'm saying, uh, that in the process, uh, Steve was sharing about his history. And it's something that's a marred history of the United States, right? about this punitive sense of justice that we have that's streaming through our veins. Uh, Jackie shared about the way church can be. So I'm gonna try to look at, since we did past, present, I would like to do a little bit of the future if, if I could take a little bit of license on that. Uh, so when I was working on this, I'm also starting to write, for the first time I'm starting to write, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> because, uh, it's grabbing me by the, my throat because my theology is in flux right now. Not so much because it's a crisis of faith as much as where my faith is taking me, okay? So with this, these issues, it didn't come overnight. It came through a process uh, which I would like to share with you and, and perhaps maybe something for you, all of you who are here, uh, uh, whatever your journey may be, wherever you are going, that maybe it might, I hope it's, it's, it might be something to maybe inspire you, I don't know if I can inspire anybody, but uh, to think about those kinds of things. Um, many of you don't know my story, so, uh, and I'm glad of the, of, the, of, the, of, of the summary that was brought in. Um, I am the son of Puerto Rican parents. Uh, we are a colonized people. Colonialism is alive and well in Puerto Rico. And my parents, oh, thank you. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, my parents, uh, my dad came, what year, Papi, 1953? My dad came in 1953. He was 17 and a half years old. And when he had the opportunity to go to college, uh, he, being a citizen of the United States, because we've been citizens, just in case, we've been citizens since 1917 <laughs> under the Jones Act of that year, okay? So my father comes in, he takes a standardized exam at Brooklyn College, which is part of the City University of New York system. And under that admission, uh, he, he should tell you that story because my dad has an interesting story as well to tell. But my dad, when they gave him the admissions test and they asked him, what was your, your, your dominant language? He says, Spanish, of course. And he says, well, since your dominant language is Spanish, you will have to study here as a foreign student. Now, mind you, the CUNY system, the City University of New York system, was free nominal tuition for all citizens. My dad had to pay as a foreign student being a United States citizen. And I'm sharing this story with you because we are in that, Puerto Ricans were in that ambivalence. Uh, in terms of Latinx communities, we are, yeah, we are, we are Latin American in our origins and on our cultural formation. But in, in the politics of the way it works out, we're neither here nor there. And the funny thing with me, now that I'm living in Puerto Rico, is I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and I'm too Puerto Rican to be American. And now when I go to Puerto Rico, I'm too American to be Puerto Rican. 
So sometimes when I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in San Juan about certain things that's happening, you know, this side of the, of the waters, uh, they're sort of like looking at me like I'm sort of crazy hippie. But then all of a sudden a white man comes in and it looks like Jesus is talking. And we like to thank the Lord of all these great things. And this is part of the, this is what colonization does. Okay? So colonialism is alive and well. Uh, and we've been suffering through this because Puerto Rico is, and I, I will make the case. Now, some of my colleagues will disagree back home, but I'm just going to make, this is me. We've been invaded since 1493. There's an interesting statue of Christopher Columbus that was erected on the shores of Arecibo, Puerto Rico, my mother's hometown. And if you should have seen the debate and the hullabaloo that went around to put that statue there. Now, I have an issue with it because it's just butt ugly. <laughs> but, oh. I do believe, I don't believe in censorship, but I do believe we should censor kitsch. But that's another story. But the image is what's interesting. An image of Columbus, who is, for many of us, in our mixed his ancestries, uh, that is an assassin, a slave owner. This story, I mean, we hear stories of Christopher Columbus' diaries. But when Christopher Columbus was appointed as the governor of what is now, what Hispaniola is now Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, you should see his treatment of the Indians for not working. And then if they didn't work, he would cut a hand off, they would, they would amputate limbs, you know, as a punishment for not doing the work. Uh, and these are people that originally owned the place, right? Um, and so that's how come this whole thing of space and who owns it and who does it belong to, that's an issue. Uh, I also would put into this thing, so since we're talking about heritage, I have this picture here. That's my grandfather. That is my dad's father. Uh, his graduation picture from med school in 1914. Guess where he went to school? Thomas Jefferson Medical College, which is now Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, he graduated 16 from high school. At that time, they go straight to med school, right? Uh, and since he was a brilliant guy, but the thing is, he was a black man. Yes, we have black Puerto Ricans too. Uh, he was a black man, but he was so brilliant. But now what's interesting about his religious heritage is about the time that my grandfather was born, the Protestant mission started shortly before the United States invaded Puerto Rico, which usually happens with missionaries, right? But in, when my grandfather was born, the Lutherans were the last ones to show up. And so in the comedy that was made, the way they divided up the island between the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the UCC, whatever, uh, they didn't know what, the island was already divided up. And said, so, you know what? We haven't done any ministries with black people. So why don't you just take them? So my grandfather was baptized in the Lutheran church, okay? So uh, it was through that connection, my understanding is, because I think my understanding is that Thomas Jefferson was founded by some Lutherans in the board. And through that connection, he was able to come to the United States and get an education, which for people like my grandfather, he would have been forced to go to Spain, which they, don't they didn't take black people to study medicine, or to someplace else in Europe, which is interesting. 
despite all the racial histories that we, you know, the, the whole racial conflicts that we have here in the United States. Uh, which is interesting also because among black people in Puerto Rico, they're the most pro-American. And most of them pro-statehood pro because the founder of the statehood movement was a name, another black man by the name of Jose Barbosa. And something similar happened to Barbosa. He ends up going to med school at the University of Michigan. And he comes back and he realizes the treatment of black folk in the United States at that time was better than the treatment of black people in Puerto Rico. So uh, I'm not trying to push the victim issue of where, where it's worse, but we have to understand that racism is everywhere and anywhere and it takes different dynamics as it unfolds in the context where it happens. And these kinds of stories are, and I'm sharing this as my heritage, because what's happened is that sometimes what we have today, we don't know what to do with ourselves. So I collected beats and pieces of my lineage there. He went to Bayamon after a show. He was 20 years old when he graduated. He was too young to practice medicine. So he had to stay an extra year at the children's hospital in Philly. He comes back at 21, and he practiced medicine among poor people to his dying day in 1945. My dad was 10 and a half years old. And so it, it, it left an indelible mark on our family. But it also affected the standard of living in the families. Remember, this was, the, the, this was right, after, right after World War II, the beginning of World War II, more or less around the World War II, the end of the Great Depression, but the Great Depression is still going on in Puerto Rico. So it forced the family to leave. And so when we talk about this, we're also talking about migration stories, too. Um, there's interesting also about the blacks in Puerto Rico. The Spanish did towards the end of, you know, since the, the Spanish Empire has fallen apart, uh, they had the rivalry still with the Brits and the Dutch and the French, and especially in the Caribbean. So in the 19th century, they said, you know what, since they were on the, on the verge of abolishing slavery on, the, on, on those colonies, they said, well, they, 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 they promoted freedom to any black slaves coming from the other islands that had a trade. And it was sort of like some sort of rival right to steal the intellectual properties of, you know, of the other colonists, of the other colonizers. And so what happens in sounds, if there's a town in Puerto Rico called San, there's a part of, of San Juan now, it's called Santurce. It was the first municipality governed by black people in the Caribbean. And it was so successful that the Spanish crown got fearful, so they decided to abolish it, and they put a lower noble uh, Basque caste to rule over it, and they renamed the town. Uh, what's funny is that part of that town is where the, part of the, 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 the municipality that was governed by blacks uh, is that beachfront that's called Isla Verde, where the airport is at, uh, all the way into Loiza, and all that area right there, that's where Roberto Clemente, the great baseball player, comes from. All those histories are really, you know, in, embedded with that. Now, my ministry focus took time to develop. And I'm, I'm here to talk about food, so not to talk about my, my family. When I grew up, all of this thing was going, you remember this? I'll give you a hint, it's not Donald Trump. I remember as a boy watching this on TV. Um, my life, in the time that I was born and as my youth, it was one crisis after another, after another, after another. And living in New York, we were developing our communities. And I realized one thing about Puerto Ricans, we're very 
tolerant of pain. But to tolerate pain means that sometimes, because pain's supposed to remind you that you're supposed to do something about it. But if you can tolerate a lot of pain, that means you could take a lot of crap. And sometimes by the time you do something about it, it's too late. Um, this whole issue of what's happening in terms of what happened to us, particularly New York City, and our communities, ever since I, was, uh, I became of age, I've been always wondering what's happening to our communities in New York. And so my pilgrimage in ministry was really the search for neighborhoods, for communities, and how churches can play a role with that. And I couldn't, you know, find a way, where, where's the starting, the issue is where's the starting point? Where do we begin? And that was kind of, uh, well, uh, I tried some experiments, and you know, they all fail. And you try some sermons, they don't sound too good. You sit down in committees, oh my Lord, they're driving me crazy. Uh, you try to speak with the elders, and they're trying to think of the church they had rather than the church they should have, rather than and the church that should be. And all that dynamic, I'm going like, wow, this, isn't, well, this wasn't in the job description. Uh, these weren't the questions that the search committee had, but you know, it is what it is. Um, also, to see this, these kinds of things, after I became ordained, I had the privilege of being the moderator of the Presbytery of New York City. Now, I was the moderator of New York when Superstorm Sandy hit. Ta-da! And so when that came about, um, we already set up, a, we, we had a wonderful exact presbyter at that time, which was uh, Tony De La Rosa. So we were able to put together the infrastructure for the team to really deal, handle the disasters. But visiting the congregations and seeing what they went through, I didn't know that going to Puerto Rico is going to be followed by another hurricane later on. So it's interesting that as I, my life and ministry, all these crises are happening. And to a certain extent, the Spirit is preparing you to how to deal with it. So I was able to keep, by the time Hurricane Maria came uh, and entered Puerto Rico, I was able to, to I had a sort of, I had some sort of calm that the other pastors didn't have. I mean, you should have seen the, the, the PTSD going on in there. And, you know, I'm talking about the pastors now, of what we had to sort of deal with. Meanwhile, you have an emergency to deal with. Um, so these are some of the life experiences that I wanted to bring as a background. But something happened while I was pastoring in Brooklyn, which is interesting. There's a sister of the church. She used to cook at our, at our retreats, Trini, Trinidad Figueroa, a saintly woman. She was a deacon in that, church, in that congregation forever. She had type 2 diabetes in a very aggressive form. So over time, the diabetes ate up her liver. By the time I became the pastor of that church, she had already went through, she went through a liver transplant. But she was no longer had the quality of life. The good news was that the, the, the surgery was a success, but the medication that she had to take, to ingest, in order not, for her, for, for, in order not to reject her liver, was the doomsday for her kidneys. So Trinidad dies of an extreme renal failure in pain. And I remember that marked me because I've never seen a human being suffer like that in the end of their days. 
So her daughter, God bless her, was another saintly woman, was doing everything she can to find a way for her mother to have the best kind of palliative care that dealt with the pain. It was all pain management for the end of uh, to her dying breath. But you know, the screams, that haunted me. And I said to myself, we have to do something about this. What could we do? So gradually, I went and started looking at what we eat and started looking at diets. And I found there was, great, there was some great movies. One was called Food, Inc. You should watch them. They'll gross you out. Don't watch them. Don't do a binge on it. But you know, take a week or two, let, it, let the trauma go. Right? So it was Food, Inc. And then it was another called Forks Over Knives. Then I started looking at diets. I started calling up physicians associations and see what, try, you know, try to look at a medical issue of how to deal with the issue of diets. And so there was one group called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and they sent me some literature. And I started reading up on it. I started geeking up on diets. And I started preaching about, you know, what we eat and what we do to eat and change our diets and stuff like that. Well, uh, just so you know, it was a disaster with the congregation. Well, they thought I was trying to impose like another halal or kosher law in the Presbyterian tradition. So I got to say they were the worst sermons of my life. But. but looking at the plate, looking at the plate, the problem that we're doing with diets, you know, they all fail. But there's a reason for it. Because... We for, we're forcing people to make an individual decision that's conditioned by our society and our social circles. And it's very important how that's normative. Because you could keep a diet, but if you're married and your husband doesn't keep it, there's chances are, you know, lead us not into temptation, but it's there. And so all of this start, you know, and then what happens? After Sister Figueroa died, there were about five or six women on that bucket that, that were on their, on their way you know, to transition into heaven. And I called one Sunday after, after service. I said, listen, if anybody needs to change their health routine and want to start a support group, let's meet after the service. So we met after the service. There were like seven or eight sisters that showed up. And we started doing these kinds of things. And I said, let's, let's, do, let's, do, a, let's do a diet and set it up so we can have. I was thinking like AA. I was thinking like Weight Watchers or something like that. And then they said, Pastor. The problem is not the diets. We've tried so many of them. They said that afternoon. We can't do this cooking by our, our, on our own. Number one, the food is wasted. And then with our families, what are we going to eat? So I had a, so I said something. So I, I'll tell you what. I'll join the diet with you. Now, the problem is that that diet was plant-based whole food. No meat. No cheese. No eggs. Nada. No dairy at all. So I said, oh, my Lord, what am I getting myself into? But, you know, I did it for, let's, I said, let's, let's try this for 30 days. We're going to meet once a week. Somebody's responsible on that week, on that Friday, to cook a meal and present the recipe so that we can share. And make sure that it was a recipe that could have been, you know, that it could last you a couple of days that you can not have, you know, the idea is to keep ourselves on the, on the track. I lost 27 and a half pounds in that month. I had, did not have high blood pressure, did not have diabetes. There was a sister who lost, I don't know how many tons of, she lost like almost 35 pounds. She was on 11 meds. 
by the end of 40 days, she was down to four. It almost looked like the resurrection of the dead. And I said, wow, this actually works. So I started realizing that diets are a product because this is a society that's, guilt, uh, that's geared towards separating and anatomizing the individual. And it's your responsibility. It's your problem. It's up to you. It's all about you, 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 you. And we're catering to you. But there's no us. There's nothing that we share. The other issue is that food is, is commodified. So look what happens. All of a sudden, I start doing research on how to keep, you know, and trying to looking to keep the women out of this problem. I started looking into, well, how do we, you know, change this? And they said something very interesting. They said, Pastor, uh, we need to see how we can get the groceries. So I started looking into the groceries and how to, you know, because there was, a, but there was a problem. In communities of color and impoverished communities, you don't have a lot of supermarkets, right? You don't have, you know, so what happens? There was like a McDonald's, there was a Burger King, you know, and, and I started looking up at these senses of these kinds of things because uh, slowly but surely, we had all, oh, this is where I was, this is where I was. I started, I skipped it, here we go. Uh, the planning that takes place by city officials to accommodate these fast food joints, just on the traffic, forget about what they're gonna put in there. Because remember, you have to put a drive-through and there's some traffic flows that goes through that. You have to put a parking lot, so they need an extra amount of space. And if you're in city centers, then they have to be in corners. They're hardly in the middle because they're not visible enough, right? There are more fast foods per square mile in our communities than anywhere else in the U.S. And if you go to Puerto Rico, it's even worse. So all of a sudden, this issue with diets started turning into like a policy kind of thing. And here I am geeking out on these kinds of, of, of results. Uh, it, it didn't take long to find out that the same illnesses not only affects Latinx communities, but African-Americans, Native Americans, and also poor white people in high percentages. Uh, when I came to San Juan, 40% of children under the age of 11 have fatty liver. You know what fatty liver means? That's already a precursor to type 2 diabetes. 53% of the youth of young and children in Puerto Rico, minors, are below the poverty line. There's another issue, affordability. So you could have the supermarket, but who's going to buy organic unless you're a foodie? So it starts to, to, start, it starts to take place that we were looking at these kinds of things of how to fix this, right? The foodie market was not accessible for our, for our communities, at least in Puerto Rico. And what's interesting is that to get these things to change and to get, because people on the WIC program, mothers, if you have two or three children, you have to decide whether you go for malnutrition or you starve for the healthy food. So you only have an option to get one healthy meal or to get three you know, sickening meals from Wendy's, McDonald's, or Kentucky Fried Chicken, wherever it is that you're looking for. And the thing is that our food policy allows for this kind of injustice to happen. 
They prefer that you shop at Wendy's and McDonald's through the WIC program than through the WIC program, you, God forbid, you go to Whole Foods. And here's where I'm starting to look at food in another light. Not just the individual, not just the social and the policy, but also politically, but then also collectively in terms of where churches play a role with this. Um, obviously, this went beyond the plate, but it also affects of the kinds of things that we want to do. So depending on where you are, there's an interesting thing also with, 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 with these uh, fast food places. Walmart, my Lord, because Walmart also sells fast food. Despite the fact that Walmart is the biggest distributor of organics, they're also trying to buy up the, the middle markets and the secondary markets uh, for the organic trade. But depending on where you, if you go to the south, you might find some variations of these. You might find Waffle House, right? You might find uh, Bojangles. If you're in Texas, you'll find Whataburgers. If you're in Southern California, but in Southern California, you'll find In-N-Outs. We'll pray for you. Uh, <laughs> but these are also the largest investors. When you're asking for community development programs, anything to do with youth center, guess who shows up? McDonald's. You won't find the Presbyterian Disaster Agency showing up for that. I mean, they do wonderful work. Right? Uh, but I'm, I'm saying this, that it, it, they're not the front line to work on a constant level with local communities. We don't have that set up in churches, but they do. And so that creates this ethical thing that started like churning inside my stomach. And I looked at not only that they are also social investors, but they're also driving forces in that community planning that I was mentioning. So who could imagine that a burger, a diner, can cause so much intrigue, trouble, at a local planning board meeting? Uh, at that time, I thought the solution would be to create you know, support groups, but no support group was going to be able to handle that tide of social policy. So in order to make sure that I wasn't just going crazy or that I wasn't just telling them what to do, uh, I wanted to preach about opportunities of what it meant to change. But I needed to look into the scripture and deal with it a little bit better. Nevertheless, despite all the preaching and the Bible studies, I felt like I was pouring a bucket of water, uh, filling a bucket with a big hole under it. Because as soon as you start filling it, it starts, so it was a total waste of energy. Back to the drawing board. So meanwhile, I collaborated with community groups that were advocating for clean environment for low-income communities. And I found this wonderful uh, man, his name, he just died this year, his name is Luis Gardena Costa, who one of the great activists in the area of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And he was on the front line of working for environmental justice for poor people. Because we talk about eco-justice, and it's usually like an upper middle class issue, right? Robert Kennedy Jr., all that kind of stuff. But he was really talking about housing, and he was thinking outside of the box in ways that I wasn't thinking. And I said, wow. And I, and I started telling him what I was doing with food. So we started you know, working out some projects together to see what we were able to come up with. Um, 
we did have some initiatives. We did degrade some support groups. We were able to talk about some of the farmers' markets to come into Williamsburg. But somehow a seed was planted, I think, eventually in the congregation. I hope it's still, it's still there. But in that congregation, something was, it was sprouting. Something was happening. You didn't have a full sense of where it was all going. Then came the opportunity to come to Puerto Rico. And I just shared with you some of these things that happened in terms, but it was a different cultural context. Uh, so many years passed since I lived in Puerto Rico. I lived there as a boy. And then, you know, briefly, it was like three or four years. And so when I came back, it was a totally different place. A lot had happened. But the problem with Puerto Rico was not just environmental degradation. The problem with Puerto Rico was the debt crisis. So now, we have another issue to deal with which is the monetizing of our existence, which is telling us how much are you worth. I don't know about you, but that sounds like chattel slavery to me. Because we're putting the value of, the, of, of a people's life, and we say you can't afford it, you can't have too much. And all of a sudden, this issue of inequality started seeping as part of the equation of dealing with this. So on the one hand, you have the debt crisis that's fueling the savage inequality, the social inequality that we have. And then we have the food crisis that's affecting, creating a public health disaster in our communities. Now, this is why I'm trying to share this with you, because I know most of you in your context are facing one of these two issues or probably both of these crises at the same time. So it might be a different iteration the way it's happening in your reality. But you will have a relative, a cousin, a neighbor, a church, a community center that's already dealing with these issues nearby your house. So this was a primer into getting myself into an advocacy phase. And somehow a seed planted in the congregation and I'm trying to figure out what, how, to, how, to, how to develop it. So Puerto Rico taught me so much about food systems. And this was the great thing that was so providential about coming to Puerto Rico. I should get that picture out of here. Oops, not that one. No, not that one. That's Sandy. I'm sorry. I, I just lost it. But uh, yeah, we're still talking about that. Um, the opportunity to serve in Puerto Rico. Uh, gave me access because it's a small island. It's 3,500 square miles on the main island. So the distance from rural to urban is a heartbeat. In fact, Puerto Ricans cry if you have to go through a traffic that takes 15 minutes. It, it, it seems like eternity. Where if you're in California, people from California say, boo-hoo, right? <laughs> Life sucks for some people. But when we get all of a sudden dealing with the issues of getting to those, so I started hooking up with farming communities. I found some food activists that I never th thought I heard. I found an interesting term that was really, that really caught me by the throat that was called agroecology. And has anybody heard that term? It's not just organic, but it's also looking for sustainable farming, but also creating sustainable communities between farmers. Because think about it. Uh, there was a mention yesterday in the, in, the, in the historical audit about his family being a, a, a tobacco farmer. But there was a network, 
I mean, despite the health devastating the tobacco industry was, but the tobacco farmers worked in these kinds of networks for centuries. And it also, I should say, my understanding was, by what little I read, it was also across color lines in some cases. But the front line of losing that environment, because that was also what kept the farms working in times when you know, they, they shared labor, they would help each other out. It was almost a cooperative model. But agroecology is about creating social environments that allows for sustainable farming to happen. And it's not just the economic aspect, but it's also the social aspect and the cultural aspect that's dealt with as well. So this is just as much of a philosophy as it is a methodology of, regarding to, to farming and food. So access to farms require access to secondary and tertiary markets, which in turn affects pricing. And during this time, I tried to contact other pastors that had similar concerns. So here I am in Puerto Rico. I only found one. And she was busy fighting marching against the incinerator that we're trying to bring in Arecibo. But she's been my, you know, my uh, theological partner in this journey together. She came to preach at, uh, at, on Palm Sunday at the church. And so we've been, we've been working together and trying to get these kinds of things together. But finally, the theological net connect, connection needed to happen in some way to seek some sort of coherent message to bring it to the local congregation. So with all this rant, let me share some of these things that sort of happened uh, throughout this time, because in the middle while I was doing this, all of a sudden the hurricane hit. So I had to put myself on emergency mode. So where do we start? Well, we had to work with roofing. Um, you see this lady? This is a lady's house. She's one of the big actives. There's an island. that Puerto Rico is an archipelago. Let me, let me make that clear. It's not just one island. There are two municipal islands. That one is called Vieques and the other is Culebra. Vieques is where there was a naval base there that was militarized, and they really devastated the place. So one of the activists from Vieques, she had lived in, she was, she was a professor in San Francisco for a number of years at Berkeley. She decided to go back home, and she started to fight the presence of the Navy. But because she was an activist, after the hurricane passed, she was received crappy help from the government. This was some of the stuff they started to do for her roofing, that patch-up job. Let me show you some other things that they did. They put PVC, just to, and they put some screws on there just to keep it, and the house was leaking all over the place. Now, that was Vieques, so we were able to get roofing in Vieques. Then there we have a camp and conference center in Puerto Rico, the Presbyterian Camp and Conference Center, which started as a rural ministry outpost. One of the things about the, the missions of the General Missions Board that started, and we're talking about McAllister, uh, it was the tail end of the social gospel. So they had another vision, right? They were already looking outside of the box in terms of the colonial model when it came to these kinds of things. So this camp started as a, as a, as a, as a rural mission outpost. So they bought nurses. They bought a dentist so that children can receive dental care. They started doing these crazy things in the middle of this nowhere. In, 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 the part of, in the southwest part of the island called San Sebastián. Um, so in the 60s, it was turned into a camp. But then after the hurricane came, uh, passed, I'm, why am I, I'm speaking such terrible English. I just do it in Spanglish, which is easier for me. Si, porque tú sabes, when we do it this way, it's easier for me to hablar en español. Um, 
The Camping Conference Center, uh, the Senate was running it directly. And I started putting the fight that said, listen, we need to separate this. We need to create a separate board. We need to change the outlook of the ministry. They thought I was crazy. But I kept insisting. I kept insisting. Says, OK, we're going to make a commission. You're in charge of it. <laughs> Next time, keep your mouth shut. Um, so I took, the I took the task. The hurricane passes. We were already getting a new director. So we were already on the mode to starting uh, some of the initiatives. But we were able, through the crisis, the director was such a dynamo. She tells me, Jose, because I was, I couldn't even, you know, when I got back to Puerto Rico, I was, I was here in the States. I got eight days later because that's the only flight I could get. Uh, it took me another 20 days before I was able to get phone contact with the camp center, which was 100 miles away from me. And then she tells me, you haven't been here, and you're the chair of the board. I said, well, excuse me, I can't drive. Uh, well, you need to get here. They open the roads. Okay. So when I get there, she says, I need an ice machine. I said, woman, where's the power? No, we have a generator. Oh, you have it? Does it work? Yes, it works. Okay, so uh, I don't have money, she tells me. So I said, me neither. <laughs> so I had to sort of work to finagle something else. So meanwhile, I said, well, no, I trust you can get it. She, she's, a, she's a very faithful, she's, she's a woman of faith. Victor met her. So I said, okay, let's, let's, so I'm driving back, ice machine, where am I getting an ice machine? Is that, is any refrigerator, anybody selling refrigerators in Puerto Rico at this time? And I found out there was, there was, a, there was a company that sells refrigerating equipment, and they were like five miles from me, and I went to visit them. They gave me a price, and it was like $5,200 with the installation, and they told me they could transfer it and, you know, install it themselves. I said, wow, this is good. $5,200, when am I going to get it? Uh, lo and behold, a sister of the church says, Reverend, I just sat next to uh, a lady on the, on the plane come boarding, coming, over back, coming back home, and she works for ESPN, Latino. She wants to give me $10,000. Okay, sure, I'll take it. So we took the $10,000, we put that, the rest went for another ice machine. I'm going to share that in a second. But we went in El Guasio. Now El Guasio, we started all these initiatives. Let me share with you some of them. We made a connection. Has anybody heard of Solar Under the Sun from the Synod of the Sun? So we started a partnership with Solar Under the Sun because they put these uh, small-scale systems. So around the surrounding communities, there's a part of the shanty towns near the campsite where the power electric company isn't coming back because they were doing uh, creative ways of accessing extra wires to connect, <laughs> right? So because it was illegal, they said, nah, that's not even approved by the planning board. We're not even going to go there. So with, through Solar of the Sun, they came last February. We, we sent, first we sent a team to get the training at Solar of the Sun, local Puerto Ricans, to get the training. They came back. They set a project. This was the first project we did for a home for an elderly couple. Right next to their house, there was a lady who died after the hurricane. And since she was in such a remote part, they couldn't get to her. So the, the, the husband had to wrap her up and keep her at base length while her body was decomposing. And it wasn't until two weeks later they showed up that he was able to give his wife a decent burial. Uh, it gets, uh, this is some of the things that they had to do to get the infrastructure to change the piping. Well, that's not it. Um, this is also part of the one of Buena Vista where I should also say we worked out a partnership with Princeton Seminary. I said, Victor, you coming to Guasio? Yeah, man. Victor hooked it up. 
And thanks to this seminary, uh, not only did they restore, this helped restore one of these facilities, which is our middle section, but they, they restored a, a hospitality house that the director renamed it Casa Princeton. Uh, so not only did we get help from Princeton, we were able to start filling out because we're, we're not going through our 501c3, so we're already able to fill out some grant proposals with state and local officials and other groups. We raised over $300,000 and we're two-thirds of the way of getting our full facilities restored. Um, this is the final phase that needs to, that's at the top of the mountain, where this was used to be the heart of the facilities where they had the teaching and the classrooms and we're hoping to get that teaching center together. Uh, right next to it, adjacent to it, this beautiful chapel on the top of the mountain of the cross with a view of the whole valley when you get up there. It's spectacular. Everybody wants to get married up there. So we're hoping that we can facilitate, if we can get this together, this would really put us into a 100% functioning level. Um, not only did with our relationship with the seminary were we able to connect there, but it also facilitated already the, what you've seen happen with the Evangelical Seminary in Puerto Rico. And thanks once again to the creative talents of the Reverend Dr. Victor Aloyo, we should not, uh, right? But my favorite project, which I wanted to bring to you here. Oh, that's another thing. We did a soup kitchen at the church. We did, how far, much time do I have? We were, um, I'm supposed to take question and answers. Okay. So let me just show you. We started an urban, let me just finish this up. Uh, let's do, give me two minutes. Okay. We started a soup kitchen at the church. We started a community garden. That's papaya. That's yautia. That's a tuber. That's citronella for flies. Uh, that's heirloom corn. And we did it also on, on discarded tires, right? Um, this is also the corn. This is the beginning of a banana about to sprout. Uh, this is my favorite, which is this fishery that we restored. We, that's the pier that was destroyed. I'm going to show you what happens later. They lost out of their fleet of 15. They only had two boats left. They lost their refrigeration system. We got them another ice machine with that money that I was telling you about. Um, we were able to restore the pier, and this is when it was already under construction. And then finally, we did an inauguration, and this man that you see right here, his name is Harry Del Valle, who's also been doing wonderful work. He's my parish associate. Um, we inaugurated it, and then the funny thing is that the mayor shows up who didn't put one penny. So what, I want to end with this, so if I, can, if I can just share this, because there's a theological part that I want to close it with. Dr. Barnes preached on chapter 21 of John, and I think he asked the question, and I want to end today with that question. How much do you love Jesus? But let me tweak it a little bit. The Greek tells us something that English or Spanish doesn't tell us. Because Jesus asked them three times, agapes me. Agape, right? Yeah. Guess what Peter says the first two times? Philos say. I love you like a brother. I don't love you agape. So Jesus is nagging him, and he's telling him, feed my sheep each time, right? Because agape is about transcendent love, people. 
And if it's transcendent, it breaks boundaries. It opens doors. It opens spaces. The problem is that agape is not too sexy. Agape is, deals with systems and structures and structures of oppression. Because if we talk about the God of freedom and we talk that God is agape, that God is love, that's the love that liberates because it looks at these oppressive systems that are in place. Ladies and gentlemen, and I'd like to thank Dr. Barnes for this honor and the seminary and the executive committee of the Alumni Association. I'm tired as hell. What a joy. There's more to do, and I'm trying to still figure out how to mess with all of this. And someday, if I get to write the book, I'll sign it for you. But <laughs> what I really want to take for, for us to take home with us is how much do you love Jesus, but with what kind of love? Okay? Let's take that with love. Let's take it with agape. Let's do the structural, oppressive, colonizing, indebting hate and indifference that's out there, and let's bring the agape that the world needs. For God so agape the, the, the world, right? And that chapter 13, it also talks about agape in relationship to the gifts. Because food, brothers and sisters, in the, our tradition is about a shared good, not a commodity. When we have Eucharist, God is giving to us and sharing. We got to take that Eucharist into our daily living and into our economy. So I'll leave you with this. As they say, our, our Jewish siblings say, Shabbat Shalom. May God grant you rest and may God, God grant you peace.